Hello, my name is Adnan Mahmutovic, and this is Love and His Discontents podcast. We are really pleased that we have today with us Dr. Lisa Ann Robertson, who is an associate professor in 19th century British literature with expertise in Romanticism and 18th century literature and culture at Department of English, University of South Dakota. Lisa Ann, thank you so much for joining Love and His Discontents to speak about Jane Eyre. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to uh, talk about Jane Eyre and Love, I think, and His Discontents. So yeah, thank you for thank you for the invitation. Pleasure. Uh, I was thinking we could start with really briefly to, to summarize the novel. Just tell us, you know, what's it about, and uh, then maybe say something about uh, how it is a tale of love. You know, what is what is love in this story? Sure. So, um, Jane Eyre is the story of an orphan girl um, who is living in an abusive situation with her foster family or step family or whatever her that family is. Um, and she's a very passionate, sort of rebellious, wild girl. And um, because of her inability to not speak her mind, she ends up getting sent to sort of a religious boarding school for indigent and wayward girls, where she ostensibly learns to sort of control her passions and to keep her temper in check and to learn humility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, upon reaching, you know, young adulthood, she becomes a governess, um, and so she moves to, you know, this Gothic mansion on the moors where she um, takes care of what we later find out is the illegitimate child of a sort of dark and brooding and handsome Byronic hero, um, Rochester. And, you know, it starts out with him not being there. He, you know, he returns and their relationship develops. Um, you know, I'm really condensing this, but they end up engaged and they're going to get married well all you know before they get married it turns out he has a um mad wife locked up in the attic so you know jane then runs away so she you know strikes out on her own across the moors where she serendipitously finds her her family her real family which consists of uh two young women and a young man um saint john rivers who is a very moralistic um, fire and brimstone kind of religious type who wants Jane to enter into a loveless marriage with him so that they can go fulfill their duty by being missionaries in Africa. She has to sort of make a decision about this. Um, she decides not to marry him. And, uh, in the end, um, she ends up reuniting with Rochester after a series of events that we can talk about uh, and they end up getting and getting married, you know, at the end of the novel. So yeah, hopefully that was a brief enough yeah, <laughs> recap. That was, that was, that was perfect. Thank <laughs> okay. you so much. Yes. Uh, so my question is, because this is one of the most famous novels about, about love. Uh, it's, it's one of those classics that is still read and, uh, uh, a lot of times, uh, adapted for, you know, series or movies, things like that. Uh, it's still extremely popular. Uh, and if we say that this is a tale of love, uh, does this book have a particular ideology of love, a particular definition of love that it wants to kind of uh, pass on? So, yes, although I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian here. 
and say that I don't think it's a book about love necessarily, although love does serve a purpose within the novel. I think that it's a that it's a story about um a young woman who achieves and maintains personhood in the face of um the opportunity, I don't know if I'd call it an opportunity or the temptation is probably a better word to subsume herself into this man that she loves. So what I would say is that if, if it has an ideology of love, which it probably does, um, it's really an ideology of, of two equals meeting so that despite the sort of legal and social structures by which women were legally considered the property of their husbands. I mean, there had been some changes to marriage laws, but, you know, generally speaking, women's identities were subsumed into their husbands. Um, so within this structure, you have two people who meet as spiritual, emotional, intellectual equals. Um, and so the ideology of love would be that like a woman isn't necessarily meant to be subservient to a man that in fact, love is about the meeting of two well-matched individuals who respect each other equally, if that makes sense. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense because uh, it seemed to me that uh, there is a kind of a contrast between this idea of love as uh, as madness, you know, falling madly and deeply in love with <laughs> someone, losing yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, and this idea of marriage as a kind of a market, almost like a transaction, uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, as you said, there are these social structures, what marriages are supposed to be based on and, and, and all that. So Jane kind of ends up somewhere in the middle. So, so yes, marriage, yes, love, yes, but there are conditions, there are terms and conditions, uh, that she, that she has. And those are that she is accepted as she is, uh, uh that, that somehow love is supposed to maybe give her uh, a sense of uh, of uh, of a kind of uh, selfhood that she owns herself rather than is owned by by someone so there this equality that you talk about it's like being on equal terms in in this relationship right um, i mean so it's so there's an added layer i think um of complexity in that she's his employer right so you know she I guess in the, in those terms, she doesn't quote unquote own herself because she's employed by him. But even within that, even within those constraints, I mean, she's still asserting her personhood in certain kinds of ways. But yeah, for Jane, you know, marriage is not, is not necessarily, um, about a good social match, which is actually really a reasonable, in my opinion, it is a very reasonable sort of, um, desire. To have a, you know, like if this is your, if this is your main form of security, which things were changing by the mid 19th century. But if this is your main form of security, you want a husband who is, um, has the financial means to take care of you and himself and his children. You want a husband who doesn't gamble his inheritance away or, you know, isn't debauched and drinking. Um, and you want a husband who doesn't physically abuse you. Like, this is what I always tell my students. Like, that's a good match. You know what I mean? Like, that's a good match. Who cares about love? Like, love is irrelevant when you are, I mean, like, it's like, it's like nowadays, if you love your job, that's lucky. You know what I mean? Like, good job. 
<laughs> that you found a job you love. And that's really how marriage was. But Jane is not seeing it in those terms. Um, or at least I think we can assume she doesn't see it in those terms when she decides to leave him. Although you could argue that he, she decides to leave him because he's already married, et cetera, et cetera. But there are other sort of things happening around um, their engagement that make it clear that she's not actually comfortable with the way things are going. Um, because as soon as they get engaged, he starts treating her as a, as a little pet and he starts buying her all these fine clothes that she doesn't want, and, you know, dandling her on his knee and basically doing all these things that she's not particularly comfortable with because the power balance has now shifted and he's starting to act more like that domineering husband. So I think that within the structure of the novel, Bertha serves as an occasion for her to flee an engagement that, you know, started out as two equals coming together, but was quickly turning into that, you know, um, into that more typical power dynamic. Indeed, that's that's really amazing, as you said, because when they first meet, there is a sense that they are a match. They become they we get a sense they are kindred spirits, that they they uh, maybe complete each other, or they see something in each other that is very attractive. Uh, and he is ready to accept her as she is, and uh, she she falls in love with him. But then, as you say, immediately these structures start being visible, that he starts falling into these old habits of being a man. Uh, and and what he thinks you know maybe a marriage should be should be like. I really like the way you said this. That uh, it's like uh, you check uh, these these boxes. Like okay, he's not like this. He's not like that. Like you, you're kind of removing all the bad stuff. <laughs> and then if enough good stuff is is uh, is left, then that's a good match. I really like <laughs> that uh, kind of almost. Uh, 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 but as you say, she she has much higher aspirations uh, that that she so, uh, still thinks that uh, marriage becomes an, a part of the equation. Uh, uh, love becomes a part of the equation of marriage, uh, so so that she wants love to be to be a part of it and not just ticking those those boxes that most people would uh, in her time. Uh, is that realistic or what? Okay, so yeah. mm -hmm. I was talking about Jane as a governess and as a woman who wouldn't have had the same kind of expectations on or even for the marriage market than, say, other middling class women who had, um, you know, a dowry or family connections, um, you know, who could, you know, someone who could sort of facilitate her entry into the marriage market, right? In part because she was this growing class of women who were called redundant women. They were women without marriage prospects, in part because all the, you know, men were going off to the colonies to sort of earn their livings and would maybe come back or maybe not come back. Um, but also as an orphan, you know, as an orphan. So she ends up joining this class of women who are governesses and that normally would have been her best hope. Right. Um, so the fact that she meets Rochester and they fall in love and there is um, this possibility that could get married, that they could get married is really sort of like was out of her um I don't know. It wasn't really a, a, a possibility that she probably entertained to begin with, if that makes sense. So I think the thing that's interesting about Jane is given this possibility, 
And given the the increase in sort of status and financial stability that she would have gotten from marrying Rochester, she ends up actually putting herself in a more financially precarious situation by leaving, right? By taking off and, um, you know, heading across the moors um, to, to get away from him. And actually, I don't think it's just that she's trying to get away from him. I think that she's trying to get away from the temptation of, you know, either entering what would be essentially entering into an illicit or a, you know, not really bigamist at this point, because they probably wouldn't have gotten married, but becoming his mistress. Right. Indeed. So, so in a sense, uh, uh, she wouldn't be unequal in that relationship in any way. Uh, uh, so, so when she runs away, she is in a sense, putting herself in this precarious position and in a different situation. But at the same time, she's not ready to compromise on, uh, on herself, uh, she's not ready to compromise. You know that that uh, uh, that selfhood that she believes in, who who she's supposed to be, or who she believes uh, uh, herself to be. So she doesn't really want to hurl herself into. Um, she obviously seems to think that's a worse situation than being lost, being without money, being in in. Uh, in, in, in that kind of situation. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's like that, that kind of basis that she, uh, that she wants to affirm who she is in a relationship as, as really, really essential. Well, and I'm not even sure so much affirming who she is, but affirming that she, that she has a right to personhood, right? Full personhood. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you re- recall when she's at Marsh End, she faces a similar sort of temptation with St. John Rivers, um, although it's different. So like with, with Rochester, it would have been this like passionate love match. Mm. And with, with St. John Rivers, it would have been this sort of like sacrificing herself to duty. You know what I mean? Like giving up on love and entering into, into marriage where she can be useful and be dutiful. So you kind of have two different models of marriage that she has to sort of choose between. And in the end, she chooses neither of them, but because of the circumstances um, of Rochester getting wounded when he goes to save Bertha, like she doesn't have to, she ends up getting marriage on her terms, if that makes sense. Um, And I think it's important that he gets wounded, you know, by going in and trying to save Bertha because, you know, he sees her as a burden. He sees her as a mistake. It, I think it's important that he married Bertha, Bertha partially from pressure from his brother and his father, but partially because she was beautiful and rich and well-connected. And so it was like all these sort of um, marriage ma- uh, marriage market ideals, which did not work out, which did not turn out well for him. Uh, but he still goes to try to save her, even though letting her die would have been the more convenient thing. Um but in the end, his getting wounded, you know, losing his eye, losing his hand, and Jane getting an inheritance um, ends up making them equals, you know, physically, like now they're physically equal and now they're equal in terms of, of wealth and riches. Okay, so... Uh... So I'm really curious about the, the way Bronte seems to structure this novel. It seems to me that she uh, gives us a full inventory of all things concerning 
a marriage, love, the time they live in, and, and all these things. So, so in order for uh, Jane to to reach this sense of equality in marriage, and in fact, in any kind of relationship, I mean, from the time that she was a child, uh, we remember that her aunt told her she's unlovable, for instance, right, uh, and that she is uh, that she has bad blood. So, so that's something that she's kind of inherently unlovable. And yet, from that time, she has this personality where she believes that she has the right to be loved. And that's something for me that, that kind of remains throughout the whole life. I mean, she already knows it as a child. Uh, yes, I am lovable. Yeah, you should love me. Uh, and when she meets Rochester, she kind of continues in the same in the same way. She wants to be on equal terms. She wants to be loved, and she thinks she has the right to it, and she has the right for an equal marriage and, and all these things. So, uh, if you just comment on that, yeah. Uh, so, I don't actually know if I would describe it as her as her thinking she has a right to be loved, right? Mm. Um, I think that she. I think that what she, I think a part of what she's doing, I mean, I think part of her journey or her whatever you want to call it, it's like a building Roman, um, which I probably said really badly because that's a German word. Um, but anyway, so it's you know it's this sort of um, this sort of tale of her coming of age and learning, you know, sort of coming up against social pressures which are represented by her aunt and. Um, you know, Rochester's sort of like desire to marry her, which turns out to, you know, he's, he wants to continue that relationship even after it becomes clear that legally they can't. And then um, St. John Rivers, right? So I don't necessarily know that she thinks she has a right to be loved because as, as she and Rochester are developing this relationship, she seems to think like, there's no way. I'm little and poor and plain. I don't have any of the ass. I don't have any of the characteristics that one, would normally want. And yet she still has this really strong inherent desire or this drive to be um, able to be, to live her life and to be, you know, as I said, fully human. So I, like I said, I kind of feel like love is in this novel, love is a way for, for Bronte to sort of comment on social structures to comment on the way women are supposed to sort of subsume themselves into the domestic roles, whether it's as a governess or a wife. Um, and I think part of the message of the novel is that like love between equals relationships between equals, if they're male and female cannot, the current social structures do not support that. Right. So whether or not you think about it in terms of like, I deserve to be loved, which I think is a very 21st century kind of thing. Um, it really, it's like, I deserve to be right. I deserve to be. And I, I remember I learned, I read this novel when I was really young and fell in love with it and had this amazing romanticism professor who taught it. And one of the things she, she sort of explained was, you know, you have the male romantic poets who are off traipsing up, mountains you know the alps or mountains in wales right they're like having these encounters with the sublime and you know 
feeling the full, like sort of the fullness of their creative imagination. And part of what Jane Eyre is doing is doing that within her own limited context, right? So she's walking back and forth across the top of, you know, Thornfield and she's having all these emotions and she's sort of having, you know, these richness, you know, this richness of experience, internal experience. And I just remember my, this professor saying that like for women in that period, the sublime had to be projected onto a man because of the limitations of their, of their life. Right. But what I think is important about Jane Eyre. And I mean, I know people disagree with me, like I've, you know, but like, I do think that in the end they do, they, they end up being equalized, right. They end up being, um, you know, like I've had, I had a student say to me, well, she still has to take care of him. Now he's blind and has, you know, and it's just like, yeah, but that's not what the novel is. You know what I mean? Like the novel itself is not saying that, like we can say that looking back, but really what the novel is saying is that he cannot lord over her anymore and he cannot keep her trapped because of financial, you know, stability um, so that she gets to be fully woman or fully human within the context of this relationship. I think I'll stop there. I have other things I could say, but I don't know if I actually totally agree with myself on some of these points. So, But uh, I'm, I'm absolutely agreeing with you because uh, the, by the end of the novel, however, you know, some of the things that happen seem to me kind of unrealistic maybe or, uh, or this, this kind of uh, or, or theoretically that, that, that there is a certain theory of uh, marriage, love and all those things, per, uh, personhood, which Bronte kind of puts throughout the, uh, this story to kind of show it. It seems to me there is an abstraction on uh, uh, you know, what she wants, not, uh, and then, and by the end of the novel, I really believe that this is true love. And that's the thing for me, that, uh, that there are so many things throughout which could make me doubt whether or not Jane loves Rochester for real or, or he loves her and all these things. There's so many things in the social structures of her time that could make me doubt. Uh, but by the end, now that, that Bronte has taken both of them, all, all of them, you know, through a series of kind of cleansing rituals, in the end, I kind of firmly believe this, they are equal. I believe that they, they are in love, that this is a good marriage, that this, that this, this is a happy marriage, or that it will be a happy marriage. So I don't know, this, this is the kind of, uh, almost, uh, like, um, uh, like a philosophical experiment of sorts or a social experiment in which just a number of things are thrown at these characters. They go through all of them. As you said, it's a Bildungsroman. Uh, and the result is something that I can, I can trust. I agree. I mean, I love, I mean, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I mean, I mean, cause if you, so if you want to think about it in, in the term, in terms of like, well, she only going to marry him for her money, for his money, et cetera, which I think we're given enough sort of clues throughout that that's not Jane's character. Um, mm -hmm. However, at the end, she's got her own money, so she doesn't need him. She's got this wonderful sort of homosocial group of cousins that she could stay with and live happily. You know, this little group of women like intellectuals and artists. Um, and he is now physically maimed, right? But she still goes back to him. I mean, it's not like she still goes back to him. Like, obviously, so for him, loving this plain woman, 
and her loving this man who is, I think you mentioned at one point is handsome, um, mm-hmm. but is now disfigured. It, it, I mean, I think it's really sort of saying that in order for some sort of true emotional, spiritual, like whatever abstract words you want to use or um, to exist, it can't, it has to be outside of the sort of typical trappings that we think should surround love. And I mean, I think that even holds true today for some, to some extent Mm -hmm. in that, you know, like we might not worry about as money as much as we used Mm -hmm. to in the Western world, but certainly things like looks um, factor in as if that somehow is important. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's the idea for me. Is that the, the uh, as as we know, Bertha used to be uh, really beautiful, and uh, and there are a lot of beautiful women around uh, around Rochester, uh, and uh, so there is the, the beauty. There is uh, the, there's a lot of these things that could be these cliches of attraction, uh, and Bronte kind of removes them one by one, trying to, trying to get at the very core of it. Okay, what is it that make that makes kind of two people match. What is is the character, the equality, this respect of each other's uh, uh, character, or as, as you said, the respect that they are. Right. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, if, and I think you know, like, so we, so Rochester is, just, I think, a very um, classic Byronic hero in that he's dark and brooding, and you know what I mean, like handsome but kind of devilish in his way. But so is Jane, right? I mean, she's not really handsome, but she's, you know, she has her own brooding. She has her own passions. Like she, she is also a Byronic hero. And I use the word hero deliberately. And so, yeah, like it's, and so I think the other part of it is, can the Byronic hero make room? Like, can there be two protagonists in a marriage, for example? Right. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that in the end for Rochester, the answer is yes. But as you mentioned, I think you mentioned it, like when, when they get engaged, he starts falling back into like, you know, sort of typical patterns of male, um, of the way a man might treat his love interest, right? In an infantile, in, in an infantile, I'll just say she, he's treating her in an infantile way since I can't get that word out. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. So Bronte wanted to remove that as well. I mean, she's really kind of pointing out things uh, which which she thinks are, are negative, which which are really um, corrupting this this idea or what kind of this this purity is the pure ideal of. Uh, I really like this idea of, of uh, Jane being a Byronic hero <laughs> uh, and the two Byronic protagonists kind of uh, be, being matched. Uh, this kind of brings me just a little bit to um, uh, to Gilbert and Gubar's famous uh, reading of the novel and uh, Bertha as this mad woman in the attic and this kind of difference between Jane as as someone who is in control, uh, who has a strong kind of uh, rational, so she's not succumbing to this wild love. She's not burning with love. Uh, she's not mad with love. Uh, whereas Bertha, I mean, as as this mad woman, she's outside herself. She is uh, she she is supposed to be crazy, and therefore her love cannot be trusted. If she even loves you, we don't we don't know. We don't, there's a lot of mystery shrouded. Uh, right. All that is Yeah. 
Yeah. So I, um, I mean, I recently, I, I refreshed myself on the Gilbert and Gubar essay in Mad Woman in the Attic. I haven't read it since I was an undergrad and you know, it, I, I love it. I mean, it's, it's, it's still one of my favorite readings of this novel. And one of the things I like is the way Bertha functions as the double for Jane. So, you know, I don't know how far I would, how far I would agree with this, but it makes it's certainly compelling when they say, when she's, you know, when Gilbert and Gubar say that, like, when Bertha comes in and like rips apart the wedding veil, that's sort of Jane's desire to rip apart the wedding veil because there's all this language around how she looks at herself in the mirror and she feels alien and there's all these clothes that don't really match her. So there's a way in which um, the two, like the two part, like Jane and Bertha together make a whole sort of unit. And I don't, I don't want to say person, but like unit. Um, yeah. And I mean, is it a part of their argument that uh, that this side of uh, so, sort of needs to be sacrificed? That uh, the the Bertha character or that that side of Jane maybe needs to be sacrificed for this relationship, for this ideology of uh, of love and marriage to um, actually be established? Uh, isn't that a part of their argument? And what do you think? Yeah, about I think that's a good question. So I'm trying to remember. I mean, they say something along the lines of like, um, Jane has to sort of, so, you know, you have Miss Temple who represses everything. She's at Lowood school who represses everything to be, you know, a, a, an angel in the house, a, a proper woman, even though you can see that there's some discontent, you know, underneath. Um, Jane somehow learns to sort of like keep the birth apart under wraps or controlled. And so they argue that like when, when Bertha dies in the end, that's the symbolic death of her sort of like mm. child self. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing, I mean, I don't know. I, I just, I have to go in a different direction, which is part of me is just like, well, birth. So it's not Bertha's from the West Indies, right? She's Creole yes. and she just sort of gets sacrificed to be this like double for Jane. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and we don't know if she loves him or why she married him. We know he married her. We know Rochester married Bertha for the wrong kinds of, re not for love, right? For status, et cetera. We have no idea what was going on in the other end. And Jean Reese actually writes about that in the White Circus of C. She narrativizes Bertha's side of the story. Um, so, I mean, I think the, the, the way Gilbert and Gubar look at it is sort of like, how do you, how does, Oh, how does a woman character reconcile the fact that if she's too passionate, society will deem her mad, right? If she's too much, society will deem her, deem her masculine. Um, and they also make this interesting argument that like Bertha's big, right? She's, she's described as being big and tall. And so she, she, in a way, she's a physical match for Rochester and for men, right? Because she, I think, stabs um, her brother you know what I mean? So, so this is a thing like the now I love the novel. I love the way it ends. It appeals to my sort of like, Oh, you know, everybody's happy in the end and in a way that I can get behind. And yet Jane, Jane still sort of has to, you know, she can't be too much if that makes sense. 
Uh, indeed, definitely. So there is a sense that she's constantly negotiating uh, a, n- a number of features. So, so going to any extreme, even the way you described, for instance, the two different kinds of marriages, like the uh, the the one that she could have with Rochester and that she could have with um, uh, uh, the um, St. John. St. John, yes. So, so they are very kind of uh, there are established forms of marriage. They are quite different, but she's kind of negotiating, saying, "Okay, what what is this third kind that I really want? What is it, the third kind that will allow me to uh, to be?" Where because in either of these, I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to be right my, my, myself. Uh, so so there's a, a number of these kind of extremities or these uh, these. Uh, uh, ways which uh, the story can go, and she 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 is is looking around. She is experiencing them and saying, "Okay, well, where do I find myself in in all this?" And uh, uh, in, in the end, yeah. But I mean, she I mean, she's negotiating social structures as we all are, always. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Rochester is negotiating them too. It's just a little bit easier for him because you know he's accorded more respect or you know what I mean like personhood like essentially life is a little is a little bit a lot easier for you know rich landed males in the 19th century but it doesn't mean that he I mean he's you know he too is actually turning his back on what would be considered a more appropriate match when he decides Mm -hmm. not to pursue Blanche Ingram which I don't think he was ever really seriously seriously considering her um I mean, I, don't, I mean, again, this is like this sort of a cruel, twisted thing that he tests Jane by like flaunting this, you know, other potential in front of her. But, you know, but Jane rises to the occasion and is just like, cut it out. <laughs> you know, like, yes. Yes, you, know, you, you think that like, I don't have feelings? Like, what are you doing? So, and I think that's the turning point for them. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. There, there is another thing which I want to ask you, which is, might, might be interesting to consider in this story. Uh, and so you see, as a part of my podcast, I'm kind of basing it on this uh, uh, idea that comes from Jeffrey Eugenides, the uh, Greek-American author. Uh, so, so he speaks of Catullus, the, uh, the Latin poet, and he talks about this um, uh, this couple, uh, so Catalyst loves Lesbia, uh, uh, but she loves, uh, a sparrow. She has this sparrow. She's madly in love with the sparrow and, uh, and Catalyst wants the sparrow dead. It wants <laughs> it gone because it's, it kind of stands between him and, uh, and the object of his desire. But when the sparrow dies, uh, what happens is that she's so sad that now love is completely impossible. Uh, now, that is, I mean, that thing which he thought was an impediment or an obstacle uh, uh, is gone, but now she cannot even consider love. You know, uh, so so Eugenides thinks that most kind of love stories have this sparrow, uh, this kind of thing uh, which makes love difficult but also worthwhile. So, so this may be a little bit of a kind of tough question when it comes to Jane Eyre. Do you feel there is a sparrow in this story? Uh, and what, what could it be? Okay, so yeah, I do actually have an answer for that. So first of all, Catullus is nuts. Because if he thinks that the only thing between him and Lesbia is the sparrow, he's clearly not considering Lesbia, right? Like, 
removing the object of her affections is not going to like make her, it's not going to make anyone just be like, Oh, now I love you. Right. So, so that seems to me that this total disregard of the quote unquote object of love, you know what I mean? Like, yes, absolutely. Like, exactly. Like it's nuts. And yet I think it's a very pervasive sort of thought process and I'll be slightly sexist, maybe amongst men, you know what I mean? Or at least we'll say, we'll put it in the past, the, the, Mm. the olden men. But yes. so the sparrow, so I, I do think, I don't know if there's an exact equivalent of the sparrow, right? Unless it's Jane's own integrity and sense of self, mm-hmm. which she will not compromise, right? Yes. So again, like she gets increasingly uncomfortable about the way the relationship is starting to look once it starts to assume the trappings of social propriety, right? The engagement and the marriage and and. Fortunately, there's a Bertha who stops things, right? So maybe the sparrow is Jane's sense of self or respect for herself that Rochester has to sort of come to realize like, no, I, 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 she's not just this little pet that I can like sit on my lap and dress up and act like she's a doll. She's another human being. And, and this is why I was attracted to her in the first place. So, so maybe that's the sparrow. Oh, I, you know what? I, I'm loving your answer so much. It makes me giddy. I have to say, it's, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> seriously, seriously, this is uh, this is an amazing answer. It really uh, resonates with uh, the way I've been I've been looking at this novel and teaching it for uh, for years. It, it's just so perfect because I've been constantly thinking, uh, like, is it an object or is it a feature? Is it what, what is it that uh, that could be this sparrow here? And it. it uh, you describe it so perfectly, especially in relation to Catalyst, who is really, as you say, not considering lesbian at all. He's just imagining that this is a thing between us. And if I just remove it, you know, but really not asking her that the object of his, of his desire remains an object rather than a subject. It, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I yeah. think like one could potentially trace this throughout, you know, love poetry from Shakespeare to Dunn, you know, like this whole notion that like this woman is just sort of like an occasion to project one's love onto or into with no sense of like, well, there's actually like, there's a whole other being here who might be in love with a sparrow. Who might be in love, exactly. And what it means that (laughs) you can actually love more than (laughs) Yeah. This is is, uh, absolutely stunning. I'm I'm loving it so much. uh, to, to wrap up, I just wanted you to um, uh, consider one thing, uh, because you, you, you have mentioned a little bit like, you know, uh, the history and, uh, and at, at some point you, when I was uh, saying something about love, you say, well, that's kind of very 21st century. And uh, since this novel is so popular, still very popular. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, in our present time, you know, what is love? What do we think love is? For instance, uh, we would say that uh, uh, the idea that, that if we marry, there should be love. If love disappears, then marriage should stop in a sense. Uh, that might be a kind of a, a, an idea that we have today. Something like, the, where do we learn what love is? And if we look at our our 
kind of Western education, uh, where did I learn what love was? So let's say I learned it from Jane Eyre and, and it developed, you know, from that time, you know, that I'm thinking that maybe Jane Eyre is one of those great works which established some grounds for what we now today still think love is or how marriage should work, uh, how we should look at ourselves and, and so on. So I don't know if you, if you could reflect a little bit on that. I mean, possibly. I mean, so, so I think that what, what is love is a, it's a, it's a process question. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think, I think what I thought love was when I was 14, 18, 25, I'm not gonna say how old I am now, but like, you know what I mean? Like it, it changed. And even my reading of Jane Eyre has changed. Like before I was just like head over heels in love with Rochester. Cause I was 18 years old. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it took a little bit of sort of time and maturity to be like, wait, he's kind of a jerk. Um, and then I could shift my focus more to Jane and to look at her integrity. So I, I think that with the right kind of instruction, um, yes, that this, that this is, could be a novel that, could be a model for what love could be. You know what I mean? Because I think we learn it from a lot of sources. I think we learn it from our parents. I think we learn it from our movies that we watch. You know, there's narratives like, I mean, I, I don't even get me started, but like I recently read, reread um, Shulamit Firestone's chapter on marriage and the dialectic of sex. And it is, it blows my mind how wonderful it is because basically what she says is this really quickly. You used to have the marriage market. The marriage market went away. We had to figure out a way to trick women into still wanting to get married. So we invented love. Oh, wow. All right. You know what I mean? And I just find yes. that, yes. I find that compelling in so many ways. Um, and yet, like, I'm not so cold hearted as to like, you know, to, to, as to wish that, you know, to hope that isn't entirely true. But yeah, I, I mean, and then there's all different kinds of love, right? There's like, Oh, I'm in love with you because you're so attractive and all these things. And then there's like, mm-hmm. I love you. And so I'm going to take care of you in your illness or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to like divorce you or leave you because you're, now you have no hand and you're blind, which is Jane Eyre. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think that's a big, yes. that's a very big question. <laughs> It is a big question, and uh, I think we, by looking at JNR properly and really analyzing it deeply, we can see there's a lot of traces of the things that uh, uh, that have that we inherited and that we kind of still uh, negotiate in our own lives. As you say, we uh, we get the idea of love from so many different sources, uh, and uh, the. And, and how we kind of approach love, as you said, in, in different um, periods of our lives, depending on what stories are appealing to us, how we see or place ourselves in those stories, right? Uh, the way we tell our own stories to others, uh, all, all those things uh, are, are so fascinating. And, and, um, and this is w- one of the reasons I love this novel uh, is exactly because with a lot of passion a lot and a lot of patience if you analyze it if you if you look into it you can learn quite a lot it's so complex uh gene goes through so many so many things that all of us could go through or have gone through uh and and we can learn from uh from that so i i i find this extremely extremely fascinating I, yeah i agree and actually i've never well, I guess I, I have thought of it in the way of, in the ways we've discussed, but it hasn't really fully 
it never really fully came together to me that one could teach this novel as one model of relationship um, that is, one might say, a feminist version of a relationship or a human version of a relationship. You know what I mean? One that, e- that values both partners' fullness of being equally. Um, yes. I think it's even more rich and interesting because of the social context of its period, right? So, like, understanding it in those terms, I think, is what helps us be able to port some of the concepts into our own terms. Oh yes, definitely, yeah. definitely, and uh, and that's that's something I like to engage uh, with in in my classes with my students, and you know, make them compare and uh, and, and think and and rethink and the things they they take for granted, for instance, mm-hmm. when it comes to love and relationships, and the and especially when they. Uh, when they think that they have a clear idea what love is, uh, but really never considered where that idea comes from. Right. Uh, right. And, and I think that's something that I think Jane Eyre can be used to, uh, to, um, to teach, to, uh, for people to kind of reflect, you know, where, where does it come from and how do I negotiate it? You know, what do I sacrifice and what do I gain in the process? Right. Right. And I mean, I think part of the reason it's still, it can be still so popular of a novel is because it is, it is offering a vision of love or, or a model of love that, that really is legible in the 21st century. I mean, mm-hmm. if we go back, so like if we go back to Pamela by Samuel Richardson, yeah. I mean, my students are always completely grossed out by the fact that like she marries him in the end. You know what I mean? And so that's not as legible. As I, as I think Jane Eyre continues to be, which I think is interesting. And yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, one of the things I love to do in my classes is to really like breaking the students of their habits of trying to project things backwards. Mm-hmm. So like the further back in the 18th century you go, the more those gender binaries don't hold in the same way that they do in the Victorian period. Um, but I think that this particular novel is modern enough that mm. you know it, it, it can teach a good it can teach a good model of relationship oh i absolutely absolutely agree with that it's uh, that's why it's so remarkable i i like this idea of legibility and uh, the transfer over uh over time yeah uh, lisa this was Huge pleasure for me to talk about Jane Eyre with you. This was really amazing, and I hope our uh, viewers, our listeners, will enjoy it uh, as much as uh, as I did. So I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, to talk about uh, one of my favorite books. Well, thank you because it's you know it's a rare chance to actually get to speak as excitedly and nerdily about you know the <laughs> literature that I'm really really into. Uh, most people don't have as much tolerance for it as 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 you do so yeah thank you for a really fun conversation and absolutely yeah absolutely and anytime and i hope we'll uh we'll meet again in one of those um, one of these uh, um, episodes when we you know take on another book that we love and speak uh, as proper nerds as you say yeah <laughs> uh, really yeah get yeah well you should hear me on pride and prejudice oh um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's. Uh, Which is another one of those like 
novels that you know that are just hugely popular in this yes. in the 21st century so yes absolutely and uh, you know as someone who wrote his uh, ba on uh, all the novels by Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. You know, I was quite ambitious back then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I w- I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I love Jane Austen. I still have all the all the books with all my notes yeah. from that from that time. Yeah, yeah. I actually pulled out my very first copy of Jane Eyre with my notes in it. Uh, oh, wonderful! Just you know, just just to be sure I had everything at my fingertips. So, yes. yeah. Well, thank you That's so cool. much. I really enjoyed this. Da, 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 da.